I like doing stuff that hasn't been done before. Okay, I'm the kind of guy that um, if somebody else has done something, right, or achieved something, there's no reason why we couldn't do it, right? And um, um, I like feeling like the underdog. I like uh, <laughs> breaking new ground. I, I definitely have a creator mind frame, right? So I, I like putting stuff that, that uh, into play that hasn't been done before. So whether I'm creating a table or creating you know, a company or creating a division. Welcome to season two of the Live My Dream podcast. I am Brendan Abernathy, a singer-songwriter and performing artist from Georgia who is traveling around the United States of America, playing shows, making new friends, spreading my music, and hopefully a little bit of joy along the way. And I am undoubtedly living my dream. On this podcast, I interview quote-unquote everyday world changers who have delayed someday and decided to make it today. Today I sit down with Leo Mateo, who through his life has been a consultant, an entrepreneur, and an incredible artist as a woodworker. We discuss how he pioneered opportunity as a first-generation American citizen, creativity in the workplace, and how sometimes the traditional route can lead to living your dream as well. (laughs) Welcome to Live My Dream Podcast. This is Brendan Abernathy, your host, sitting across... From a dapper man, Senor Leonardo Mateo. Mr. Mateo, also known as Leo, what do you have to say for yourself? Go Tigers. Oh, not a good start <laughs> to the podcast right there. So Leo and I go way back, I guess. Uh, I guess he, I go further back with him than he goes with me or the other way around because he's known me basically since I was born. And he's, how old are you, Mr. Mateo? 52. 52. It's going to yeah. be weird for me to yeah. call you Leo this yeah. whole episode, but I'm going to get into it. I'm going to get into it. And uh, we have Leo on the podcast today because he has taken a very incredible journey through life. Born in Venezuela, immigrating to the United States officially at the age of 12, going to the University of Pennsylvania, yeah. on the swim team there, graduates and goes and works for... First Pricewaterhouse and Ernst & Young. Then Ernst & Young. Then helped start a consulting company called North Highland, Mm -hmm. leaves that, starts a woodworking business, and then after a couple years building beautiful products, starts another company, another consulting company, which office we are in right now called the Experient Group. And actually, I did not start that. Experient. Experient, that's right, yeah. My buddy Jonathan started the company back in 2001, and he used to work with me at North Highland. So, But then in 2013, when I was considering going back to consulting or doing some part-time consulting, that's when he said, why don't you come over here, help me take the company to the next level, and then you can take over it, and that's what I did. Amazing. So we kind of relaunched it, but I didn't start it. So okay. Jonathan started, and he's very much active in the business still. I mean, we, we talk almost on a daily basis. Good deal. Yeah. So what does a day in the life of Leo look like? Oh, the other days? thing, I want to make sure that I, I was only in the swim team at Penn for... Um, not even the full year, for full first year. My shoulder gave out, and that was it. But I wasn't recruited for swimming. It was, it was just, it was a walk-on situation. You were recruited because you were a genius. <laughs> I told everybody I was. So. <laughs> there you go. Awesome. And what did you study at Penn? Mm. I started out in chemical engineering, and then I switched to uh, industrial engineering. Yeah, because I had no passion for chemical engineering. And then when I looked around, I still wanted some engineering. Um, and I thought that industrial engineering was sort of the most generic out of all the engineering <laughs> fields. 
that most closely aligned with business. Uh, I took all of my electives basically out of Wharton and, and foreign languages and stuff like that. So just industrial engineering seemed to be a, a pretty decent one. Another interesting fact, he mentions foreign languages. How many languages do you speak? I speak, I'm learning English. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm speaking very goodly. Um, no, Spanish is my first language, then English. And then uh, at one point I used to speak French and Italian fluently. I don't anymore because I don't really practice them very often, but, but I still speak French and Italian, yeah. Amazing. So you mentioned that you chose industrial engineering because it was the most aligned with business, and then we know you went into, I guess back then it was the big six, now we would call them the big four. Yeah, yeah. Um, when I started looking for jobs, it was a big eight, quickly became the big six, and then uh, so I started with Price Waterhouse. They sent us the training um, in Columbia, Maryland. Um, there I met Kimberly. Uh, I asked her to- His wife. Yeah, my wife. Uh, I asked her to marry her, marry me pretty quickly thereafter, and then um, and then from from Price, I, I joined Ernst and Young, and um, and was there for a few years, for about two or three years, um, before I had an opportunity to join these these three other guys who had started North Highland about six months prior to my leaving North Highland. They were former North Highland people. I mean, former Ernst and Young people, and I knew them from from Ernst and Young. Um, and they left Ernst, started North Highland, and I joined them not long after that. So I was really there early on to, to really try to help establish and create the company and grow it really during its first 15 formative years. Coming out of college, you chose industrial engineering because it was the most aligned with business. How did you decide to go work for one of those big eight companies with PwC? Yeah, so when I was, when I was in school, um, I knew that I was a generalist, and that's actually one of the things that attracted me to industrial engineering. Uh, I liked elements of every aspect of engineering, and of course I liked the, the business element of that. Uh, my dad was an industrial engineer. At, at Penn we called it systems engineering, but it's essentially the same thing as industrial engineering. And it really is the, the, kind, of, um, the kind of engineering practice that allows you to put all the other pieces together, how everything fits together. A little bit of electrical, a little bit of systems, a little bit of mechanical combined with a little bit of business, ergonomics, whatever the case may be, that's what industrial engineers do. How do you bring the whole thing together and then how do you optimize it and make it better? It's sort of the problem solving element of it that, that really attracted me to it. Um, but in addition to that, I was also an actor. So I did, uh, which is something that I had not done in high school, but I did in college. I did musicals and acting and stuff like that. Never really considered going into that. I, I knew that it was a hard life. And um, I knew that, that uh, probably the, the lifestyle as a whole would not really be for me. Um, but I knew that I was good with people and I was good at you know, uh, the EQ skills um, side of the equation. And so I was seeking jobs that were either in the technical sales arena or in the management consulting arena. Mm -hmm. And that's what I set out to do. And uh, the more I was interviewing with different companies, the more I gravitated towards the, you know, Ernst & Young, Pricewaterhouse, uh, Anderson Consulting side of the equation. I could just really see myself because they had the right level of social interactions and people dynamics along with, with a um, command of certain subject matters, whether it was technology or process or whatever the case may be. And I just happened to get fortunate enough to get an invitation to Pricewaterhouse. And people skills is definitely a major strength of yours. It's funny when I get when I see you and my mom in a room together, <laughs> two of like the, the 
biggest people, right. people, people I've ever met in this. Like, both of you just kind of can change the dynamic of any room, and more the more so than change it, like meet it and then make it better. You know. Well, I don't. I don't believe that I'm as gifted as your mom in that field, but your mom definitely fits that bill for sure. I, I think so. you both definitely are. <laughs> well, thank uh, you. Yeah, of course. Um, so going into consulting right out, did you find that side of you stoked the way that you wanted? I found it very natural. You know, I don't know if stoked is the right word for it, but uh, for me it was, it, was, it was easy enough and it was just natural enough to be in team dynamics, both with coworkers, uh, other employees, um, you know, uh, clients and that kind of thing. My dad had been an entrepreneur and, and he also has very strong people skills. So I kind of grew up in that. I, as a very young kid, my dad used to take me to board meetings and stuff. You know, he would have meetings in, with clients in New York City with people in the petroleum industry. And I, I would be sitting there as a kid in a suit, just kind of listening in and joining in. And he would always give me the opportunity to jump in and ask questions or give my opinion, whatever the case may be. Looking back on it, I was pretty pretty brave of him to do that, but but I did that. So I was always comfortable um, with that. So I found it just as a very natural thing for me to do. Natural for you to relate to business people? Is that what you yeah, mean? Yeah, yeah, and to just interact with people and try to understand where their pain points were and their issues and their challenges and what's working well, what's not working well, um, and what can we do to help. So it's sort of that service heart service mentality. So what about that creative side that you got from the acting? Like, how did you yeah. use that while you were working a nine-to-five job as well? Well, especially being in the big four, big six at the time, um, there was there was an element um, where you were always thrown into situations um, where perhaps you as a young consultant were not really fully prepared, right? And as such, you have to really draw upon your confidence and your, your experiences and really sort of read a few pages ahead, if you will. Um, so, so you know, you, you tend to use a lot of creativity and a lot of acting, mm-hmm. sort of, you know, we used to have a joke expression back at the time, which I believe still exists in that world, which is always certain, sometimes right, <laughs> you know? So there's your acting and your creativity right there. Uh, for me, it actually turned out to be a really good thing because it put me in those difficult situations where clients were expecting you to have a certain level of expertise that you didn't already have. So consequently, you had to gain that expertise pretty quickly and you have to sort of you know, hold your own, if you will. So there's a little bit of that creativity. Um, I remember situations. I remember situations early on where you would get trained. I remember this clearly at Ernst & Young, getting trained on facilitation how to facilitate meetings and those kinds of things. And there's a subject matter within the facilitation training which deals with um, how do you deal with uh, difficult uh, uh, situations, right? Or a potentially uh, disruptive kind of person in the meeting or whatever the case may be. And then I remember going on this project in Chiquita Bananas, uh, down in Chiquita Bananas, down in Honduras. And we, yeah, exactly. And then uh, and then we, we walk into this, this office with, dirt floors and you know we're there to do a facilitated session and in comes in the group of people that we're supposed to interview and it's the foreman of that particular division or that particular group and he's walking and he's got one or two guys in front of him and one or two guys behind him and he kind of they all go to the same side of the table and 
They stand at the table and he looks to his left, he looks to his right, they're looking at him and he nods and they all sit down. And as he's sitting down, he reaches behind his, um, his back and takes out a gun and puts it on the table and just basically that's how we begin a facilitated session. So, uh, so talk about your dysfunctional behavior that you have to kind of deal with. You know, how do you get these guys to open up every time that we would ask a question about what's currently going on or how would you like things to be done? Uh, they look at him for approval and if he nodded yes and they answer the question, if he nodded no, uh, shook his head no, then basically they, they didn't answer the question or they just kind of, you know, decided to do something different. So, uh, so that, that required a certain level of creativity and ingenuity that you're not even ever really trained for, right? So you resort to humor, you resort to um, building scenarios, whatever the case may be. And as a very young guy, you know, that was, that was a fun yeah. thing to do, you know? That's so a great story. It tells a, it's a story anyway, right? It's an awesome so, story. Yeah. <laughs> what was that like, dynamic-wise? Like, how could you get work done when there's a gun sitting across the table from you? Well, I mean, it's it's shocking at first, but then it's there. It's not doing anything, so <laughs> we're good. We weren't really solving world hunger or doing anything major like that. So, uh, but anyway, I, I think he just did it more for show than anything else. Yeah. It's sort of the uh, the appropriate level of machismo, you know. Sort of, yep. so basically, yeah. You just kind of forget about it at that point. But it was comical, for sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, what's your leadership style? That guy's has put a gun on the table. Like, how do you see... I'm more of a machete guy. Okay, yeah. yeah. Machetes are good. They, they leave a lot of blood behind. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I uh, from a leadership perspective, I've, I've always responded best and consequently then uh, try to, to really practice more of a notion of a servant leader. You know, um, we, we look at our structure and uh, company structure and how we're set up where... Uh, we're not your traditional pyramid, if you will, top-down approach. Uh, we're really more of an upside-down pyramid where our clients are at the top because we're there to serve them. Our people that are in the front lines are consultants that are working with clients. Uh, they're the first line of interaction with clients. They're the ones that are serving the clients. So I look at my role. I look at Ashley's roles, Martha's role. Everybody here in the office from an operations perspective is sort of at the bottom of that pyramid serving everybody else who's serving our clients and that's uh, I mean that's really the way that I uh, that I look at it we have responsibilities I have responsibilities to clients but then also to our people so and that's really the way that it should be and I've never really had much patience for the more traditional hierarchical uh, kind of environments I think in some cases that makes sense like the military right um, and in some scenarios like that but but typically I'm, I'm more of this I follow more this other, mm-hmm. this other view. Did that play a role at all in your decision to leave EY and move to North Highland, or was yeah, the leadership structure there? Yeah, positive? I mean, it, I mean, gosh, that was a long time ago, Brandon. So, um, if I were to look back on it, um, EY was a great place to be early on in your career. Okay, Price Waterhouse, the same thing. They're great schools. It's a great place to to be put in difficult situations. You learn the vernacular of consulting, you learn the processes, the mechanics, you get put into these impossible situations where you really have to build a lot of character um, and, and, and figure out what to do. Um, there are a lot of people that you can learn from, both what to do as well as what not to do, okay? Um, but, uh, but ultimately, the reality is, is that the lifestyle can be pretty brutal. You know, when I was on this project at Chiquita Bananas, 
Uh, we were coming home every three weeks, every two weeks, three weeks, and I was just recently married. You know, for two years that we were engaged, I didn't really travel anywhere. I had all my projects in Atlanta, and then you get married, and then you get sent everywhere else. You know, first to Florida, and then to Charlotte, and then to Cincinnati, and then to Honduras. So I just kind of kept getting further and further away. Um, the um, the other thing that, that did bug me a little bit, um, a little bit of this authority, you know, challenging authority kind of kind of element that I've always kind of had in me, is um, is is the fact that that at the time the company that I was with at the time, while I was really appreciative of all the things that we were experiencing there, they had a way of making you feel like you were worth something because of Ernst and Young. When I always thought it was the other way around, I thought Ernst and Young was a great company because of the people in it, mm-hmm. right? And that was something that when I connected with Dave Peterson, who founded North Highland, uh, that's just something that really resonated. It's, it's that uh, this notion that, um, that, that the value really isn't in the individuals that come together to serve a client together, right? Mm-hmm. So that just really resonated to me. So I don't really have any beefs or any issues. I mean, I'm actually very grateful for the, um, for the big four what's now the big four yeah. consulting companies, you know, got a great, great experience, met some great people, met my wife, met the people that I ended up joining forces with, you know, to do North Highland and had a great time doing that. So, I mean, our lives today are really made up of all the experiences that we've had, right? All the mistakes that we've made, all the things that have gone well. So from that perspective, I'm beyond grateful for everything that's happened in my life. Yeah. So, Struggling with boredom. Looking for something fun to do? Feeling like you just want to get out of the house listening to this podcast? <laughs> man, oh man, do I have the option for you. The Burrito Challenge. The single best day of the year. We're talking five burritos, four amazing activities, a day full of fellowship and fun. You will make new friends. You will eat until you don't want to eat anymore. You will have a great time. It's a partnership as old as time. Brendan Abernathy and the Burrito Challenge. And this year it is tentatively planned for July 25th in Atlanta. And there could be more locations and more dates coming your way. Don't believe me? Check out the Burrito Challenge at theburritochallenge.com or on their incredible Instagram page at Burrito Challenge. Hope to see you there and keep eating. Moving into... North Highland, how did you see your lifestyle change in terms of like how much you were working, what you were doing in work, and what did you find exciting? What did you find difficult moving from a very corporate company to a smaller company that's starting to get the, yeah, get the wheels yeah. turning? So when I joined Ernst, I was 20. I mean, when I joined North Highland, I was 25 years old. Okay. So I was still pretty young. I was just recently married. Um, my wife had a job, so both of us, you know, we were double income, no children at the time. And um, we were in a situation that that we can take some freedoms. And in addition to that, uh, we were living not only within our means, but slightly below our means, okay, which is something that a lot of people seem to not practice, but we were very keen on that, sort of living within your means and give yourself some freedoms and some opportunities to be able to make the decisions you want to make, not necessarily the ones you have to make. All right, so that's one thing. With my wife at the time still working, um, 
then that afforded us some opportunities. It was a very entrepreneurial environment. I came from an entrepreneurial family. My dad had his own business, so I was always, you know, uh, aware of the rewards, but also some of the risks associated with that. In fact, when I first started working at North Highland, I went from having a salary to having a bi-weekly draw program, which you basically got a stipend every two weeks. And our, our compensation was based on what we charged to the client. So sort of like a contractor almost, right? If you were working uh, and you were billing to the client that you were getting paid, if you were not billing, then you were not getting paid. What uh, Dave did for me as the first sort of like junior person in there is uh, he offered a draw program, which the idea was is, hey, we'll give you some very minimal amount every couple of weeks so you can pay your bills. But as soon as you start working on a project, you fill that bucket first and then anything that's left after that you get to keep. Right. Um, and the compensation plan was actually very entrepreneurial. It was. Uh, I think the way that we structured it was whatever rate you charge to the client, uh, you got to keep roughly 50% of that. And then you got uh, an additional zero to 10% of the revenue for any role you may have had in identifying the opportunity and an additional zero to 10% for any role you may have had in helping close the opportunity. So if you were finding your own work and closing your own work and selling yourself and doing your own work, you can get 70%, almost 70%, right? Um, of, of the whole bill rate that you were billing to the client. So very quickly, uh, I, I let my entrepreneurial juices <laughs> really come alive and not only get really busy doing work, but then trying to find work for other people, you know, because then I was getting little bits and chunks of, of, of money, you know, finder's fees and that type of stuff for so their work So you were bringing well. in clients right away? It was a very rare thing, but yes, from an early age, I was actually able to not only focus on what it was that I was doing with clients and delivering value with the work that I personally was doing, but then through through just just my, my general intrigue and, and asking questions about the business and what else was going on, I was looking up what I call looking upstream and looking downstream from the project that I was working on and seeing what else was going on and see what other issues they were having. And then I was coming back to Dave and say, hey, Dave, you know, I know we're working on this thing, but I noticed that uh, this is going to cause a problem later on because they don't have a process or they don't have the technology to be able to do that. And then we were trying to figure out collectively with Dave, we were trying to say, okay, well, let's go talk to them and see what's going on and see if we can help them there. And then I was actually able to bring some people that used to work with me at Ernst & Young as well. So I was building teams. So yes, at a very early age, I was actually identifying work and selling work and then also helping source some of those projects with some of my the people in my network. Um, it just really suited me very well. And the fact that there was a lot less structure than in the consulting environment just, you know, was was fantastic for me. Uh, because in, in, the, in the environment that I was in, understandably so, I would have been restricted. I wouldn't have been able to talk to clients. I would have had to let somebody else talk to clients, right? Whereas in the environment that I was in, it was just us. So I had an opportunity at a very early age to do a lot of things that I know that I wouldn't have had an opportunity to do. I, I, I grew very quickly. Um, I, was, I was super excited by the work that we were doing and the opportunity that we were having. I was making mistakes left and right, uh, but, but learning how to correct them as well. Mm -hmm. So it was just really, honestly, that perfect experience at mm -hmm. the time for me, you know? Do you thrive in unstructured environments? I believe in structure, obviously, right, in processes, but I like doing stuff that hasn't been done before, 
Okay, I'm the kind of guy that um, if somebody else has done something, right, or achieved something, there's no reason why we couldn't do it, right? And um, um, I like feeling like the underdog. I like uh, <laughs> breaking new ground. I, I definitely have a creator mind frame, right? So I, I like putting stuff that, that uh, into play that hasn't been done before. So whether I'm creating a table or creating you know, a company or creating a division. When I was at, at North Highland in my latter years, I mean, what I did all the time was really uh, help start new large accounts and then establish the teams who were actually gonna then take those, those accounts and grow them for the long term, right? And then moving on and then doing it again somewhere else. And then later in my career in North Highland, I was, I was really launching all the new divisions and new groups that we had in North Highland. So when we decided that we were gonna go international, that's what I went and did, okay? When, we decided that we were going to acquire another company and kind of incorporate into what we were doing. That was my responsibility to do that for us. That was a creative agency. When we were going to start a new staffing organization, that was my role to really establish that and, and, and promote that and, and really incorporate it into the rest of the work that we did. So um, I sort of have that, that entrepreneurial drive, create something where it's not there. Otherwise, I probably would get bored. You would get bored. That's what I, I was going to ask. Is yeah, do, do you think yeah. you would get bored if you were in the same type of environment, the same job description for yeah, a long time? Yeah, I mean, for me, I, I, it's, I, I would get bored. I mean, those kinds of things require you to have multiple skills, right? And to be able to switch back and forth from one skill to the other. And that's what I love. Remember, I'm an industrial engineer, right? So I like seeing how all the pieces fit together. I like drawing upon all my experiences, all my background, all my abilities to really make something happen. Um, so that's that's why I like those kinds of environments. If it becomes sort of a, uh, a routine, more operational type of role, then I'm probably not your guy um, because I, it's going to be difficult for me to get motivated and, and energized by that. You know, From a work perspective, it's always important to understand uh, in every situation that you're in, every role that you have, in your new role in particular, you know, um, are you going in to do a turnaround to create something new? Are you going in to sort of... Uh, take something from point A to point Z and grow it? Or are you there to sort of just, you know, maintain the status quo and manage it, right? Mm -hmm. There are creators, there are doers, and there are managers, and there are thinkers. I'm more of a creator, okay? Um, and different companies find themselves in different stages needing different things. So uh, fortunately for me, I had the best time in North Island while we were in create mode. Uh, fortunately for me, I came over here uh, when we were really in sort of like not turnaround because the company had been established and it was doing well, but it was a major growth mode, which is sort of like a creator. It's a it's an evolution of the creator model. That's a really cool perspective. Yeah. I love that you're saying like you're a creator within a business. And yeah, like, yeah. It's just well, a very cool perspective. It's it's important that when people make a move in a corporation when they get promoted or they take a new job in a new company to try to really understand what that is, okay? There's actually a book that was called The First 90 Days that includes some of that information, help you quickly assess which mode you're on and then try to figure out, figure out what the outcomes and the objectives are given that mode and then figure out how you're gonna be able to deliver on that. But then also there's a, the bigger element of matching it up against your natural abilities and your interests in those kinds of things. All right, we are about to take a brief song break. If you don't want to hear an excerpt 
from one of my songs, click the 30-second little thingy at the bottom forwards, and that will get you through it. If you do, this is my song, Three Blocks Down the Road, available wherever you listen to music. Okay, and we are back from that wonderful song break there with Senor Leonardo Mateo. <laughs> Do you approve of my Spanish? Sure. I mean, I've always been impressed with your Spanish. Oh, thank and you. And your interest and your passion for Spanish. I love it. I love yeah. the culture. Yeah. Um, so why don't we talk about that really briefly? Um, I remember when you used to sing Feliz Bobby Dodd. Feliz Bobby Dodd, yes. Or Elise <laughs> Stole My Car. Also, if it, my sister's name is Elise. I sing Elise Stole My Car. <laughs> That's great. Um, Growing up, at least your first 12 years in Venezuela, do you feel like that has affected you at all in terms of your approach to the world and how you see things? You know, the Venezuela that I grew up in uh, is very, very, very different Venezuela than the one that's, that's there now. Um, and a large number of all my, my friends that I grew up with um, are actually living here in the States now or in Europe or everywhere else for the simple reason that talent basically left the nation, right? Now, some are still there, and I'm still connected with them on Facebook, which is one of the most incredible things that that after all these years and all these decades and decades to be able to reconnect with friends from that era. I mean, it's just almost surreal um, and cool. Yeah. It's <laughs> definitely the, cool the positive yeah. face yeah. of Facebook. Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah, there's a lot of things that are really frustrating, right? But it's, it's really nice to, to see how all these people that you knew in a very different time, in a very different world, in a very different part of the continent, right? Um, that, that they grew up to be very decent people, you know, with wonderful, lovely families and, you know, similar values still after all these years, despite all the circumstances. And in particular, for the ones that are still in Venezuela, it's just very, it's amazing to see how positive and how blessed they feel despite the fact that they live in those circumstances over there, you know? Um, so that, that, that's very cool too. So. so what do you think is the key to positivity then? You're a very positive guy. You're well, saying these folks are positive I, so, despite... So this is, this is one of those things that, that um, I, I, think, I think we've lost a lot. A lot of times I, I, I fear that we've, we've, as a culture, as a nation we've lost our ability or a desire to be grateful. And we try to find happiness in false idols and just everything else. And the reality is, is that, that uh, if you're not grateful, um, then it's gonna be very hard to truly be happy, you know? And uh, uh, so I think that's something that, that we, all, we all really need to be very mindful of, okay? Um, I am very grateful for for all experiences, for all opportunities that we received, you know, for all the the blessings uh, that we receive. Uh, whether most people would like to admit it or not, we're still living and we're born into the greatest nation there ever was. Uh, doesn't mean it's perfect in every single way, but man, there's a reason why everybody wants to come over here, right? So. I think that we we need to be grateful about that, and um, I'm I'm not 
you know, we're all fallible, we're all human, so we're not always grateful all the time. But but I find personally that that uh, uh, that I'm happiest when I'm most grateful. So, thank you for sharing that. Awesome. <laughs> uh, <laughs> let's fast forward 30 years from moving to the United States, roughly 30 years. I don't yeah. know exactly to when you start. Your woodworking company, Sequoia. Grand Sequoia. Grand Sequoia. Yeah. yeah. Some awesome products. He had yeah. these. He had this really cool machine that he used to like calibrate, and then it would like cut exactly what it. It's a CNC, a, a computerized numeric control machine. I actually just bought another one. So. So you're uh, still woodworking. Yeah, I still have a shop. Yep, in Norcross. So, um, in fact, um, most of the furniture you see here in the office, and uh, a lot of things that we have, I make in my shop. So. Amazing. Yeah. How did you make the decision to leave a very comfortable job? Not necessarily comfortable work, but you know, like a comfortable paycheck, comfortable, all these things are coming in, it's like exciting. And then to move to this completely kind of scary, self-actualized yeah. idea of building wood products. So it, it wasn't as romantic as, as you might think. I'm a songwriter, I'm gonna make it. <laughs> <laughs> That's my job. Yeah, no, it was, it was more, it was more of a of a series of circumstances that just kind of all happened to be at the at the same time. Um, one was that I had started working with an industrial psychologist prior to leaving North Highland to to really try to figure out where my natural abilities and and uh, were uh, to try to either verify understand um, if I was doing what I was supposed to be doing, you know, like leveraging your gifts and those kinds of things. What is an industrial psychologist? An industrial psychologist is basically a psychologist that really helps a lot of, you know, people in corporate and industrial uh, circumstances and situations, you know, figure out um, how to put the, basically, in my case, is how to put the right people doing the right jobs and the right functions. Basically, dynamics of different corporations, the people side of the equation, right? So, there's a series of tests called the Highlands, ironically, the Highlands. Natural ability battery test. It, it basically what it what it highlighted was that I was pretty well matched with what I was doing in consulting, but uh, that I needed to have a physical manifestation of physical output for what I did. It explained why I was a creator. It explained why I was good at kind of creating things that weren't there before. That I was sort of like the kind of person like to put things together and kind of draw upon all these different experiences to put something together. Um, but it, it made me pay attention to that. Right around that same time, the CEO then uh, wanted me to step up and take on a different role in the organization. And I had already started thinking about doing something different, more in line with my natural abilities. And then right around the same time, we were having uh, a, a corporate change where we were going to be having a financial event without having to sell the company and everything else, which meant that I could cash out a lot of what I owned which would give me a lot of opportunities to just really walk away and not have to worry about work for some time and then think about what I wanted to do. And so it was just the right opportunity, the right time. I felt that I had accomplished a lot of what I wanted to accomplish there. We were becoming a little bit more operational at the time. And um, I didn't find myself as moved by the operational element. Uh, that was compensated by the fact that my role was really more the, the, the guy who was helping drive all these new things. So that was pretty exciting still. But, but I just really, more than anything, I just felt like I had done a lot of what I had done, wanted to do. And I was, I was at a good stage in my life that I could just really try to figure out what else I wanted to do. And my thinking originally was to go into 
real estate development. Um, this is at the end of 07, beginning of 08, which was a really bad economic time. And I knew that the economy was going to take a hit, but neither I or most people ever imagined that it was going to be as, as bad as it turned out to be. Um, which from a real estate perspective, there were sure there were a lot of good buying opportunities, but there was no point in buying anything if you weren't going to be able to do anything with it, develop it or sell it or whatever the case may be. So in the meantime, I just decided to do something related to that. And um, um, I had always been a woodworker. I had always been someone that liked building things and making things. Um, and so I felt that, that, that there was a gap in the sort of general remodeling cabinetry construction world for for people to really focus on service and adding value and the little things like showing up when you say you were going to show up um, delivering what you said you were going to do I mean all the things that as a consumer you value and you always get frustrated that you know why can't they do some of the basic things so if you really think about it it's a lot of what we did with clients in the consulting world right that service mentality but just really applied to that side of the equation to to building things and installing things, etc. So, um, so I haven't been a woodworker um, for most of my life from a hobby perspective and liking, since I like building stuff and making stuff, I just sort of started leveraging my personal network and reaching out to people um, to see what, uh, if they needed anything built or done. And, you know, people always liked the things that I did for my own house. So I started just, you know, doing that. And, and, and I figured that along the way, I would probably find some designers or come across some designers that had some ideas on what they wanted to build and some designs that I could just build them for them. I really thought that in my case, my strength would be in my ability to build something to a certain high quality standard. Um, and then also the, the more consultative side of the equation, which is the, the project management and then the communications and everything that went along with that. As it turns out, um, a lot of the designers that I started with whom I started working, they they actually did not have drawings, they did not have ideas. They just had, you know, loose concepts, and it was up to me to start coming up with some designs. And as it turns out, they liked my designs. So I never really thought of myself as someone who can design something from scratch, but it turns out that that's something that uh, that I did. And then the ability to to draw it up in a really cool computerized model, right? A three-dimensional model and show it to them and show them options and build it from there. And, and uh, it's it's just something that, that came pretty natural to me. It took a lot of hours, took a lot of time, but, um, but that's really, you know, I was able to kind of distinguish myself in that way. And, and we had a great time. I could build, if somebody needed uh, a little bench, we could make them a little bench. If they needed somebody to remodel the whole basement or the whole left wing of the house, we could do that, you know, and we can do as little or as much as they what they needed. So what was your favorite part of running a woodworking business? Was it seeing people's dreams come to reality in terms of the woodworking? Was it building it with your hands? Was it? building these relationships with the designers and then making their visions come to life? How well, did that all ultimately, the best part of it all was and still is the notion that things that we were building, things that I built, things that we built as a team um, are still up and around and adding value to those families and bringing joy and 
and that people just really appreciate and they, they, they enjoy their space that, that we built for them. They enjoy the, the particular piece of furniture. Um, they develop stories around those objects. You know, they have memories that they build. They have special moments around those places. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the fact that, that, uh, that, that our friends at the Stacy's, you know, have their, their open house for Christmas and they have it in the basement because it's their special room in the house, which I designed along with them and built for them, you know, mm-hmm. and that's pretty cool, right? Um, those kinds of things, you know, and the fact that people still thank me for that or people still talk about it. The reality is that after all the years of consulting, you know, while my clients really always love the experience that we deliver for them, none of them can point to that one deliverable that you did. <laughs> Excellent PowerPoint. <laughs> exactly. That one PowerPoint. So that that is pretty cool that that you build you know objects and things that are part of their fabric and their family and and it lasts them and, and honestly some of these hopefully most of them are gonna outlive me and that's pretty cool you know so and then some of these will get passed on to future generations so that's that's pretty cool so that's the favorite part aside from that on a daily basis the part that i probably enjoy the most is again was the the fact that I was starting something new that hadn't been done before. I was new to the industry. So I love that element of it, the fact that I was new to the industry. And despite that, I was having, you know, people say, you're really good at this, right? And when I stopped doing it, it's like, man, you were really good at this. You sure you want to leave this, right? Um, that, that, that makes you feel good about what you're doing. Um, the fact that in doing that, I was able to use all of my faculties and abilities and, you know, um, and, and, and that was pretty cool, right? Because I was doing all the selling, I was doing all the sourcing, I was doing all the design, all the engineering, building quite a bit of it, installing it, making sure that the clients were served, you know, doing all of it. And to me, it was sort of like, it was a challenge, it was cool, and uh, it was a very zen-like experience because I got yeah. to really use all of my, my abilities. And the other thing about it is that, that it just gave me a, a first-hand look um, at, at, a, at a whole other side of society that people in corporate America don't always get to experience. And that is sort of this, this, uh, this more working class. I mean, I met a bunch of people who did not go down your traditional path of college who were phenomenal, phenomenal people, very talented, very intelligent, very creative you know, would give you the shirt off their backs kind of thing. And, uh, and to really look at all of this in context with a society that, that had really started um, devaluing that side of our world. You know, the fact that we were outsourcing everything to other countries because that's not the important work, right? Well, the reality is, is when you're making stuff, you're bumping up against problems and challenges. And when you're bumping against those problems and challenges of making stuff, you're coming up with solutions. So that's to me a critical element of ingenuity and creativity and innovation and everything else. And I think we lost a lot of that. And uh, so it was, it was really good to have that connection with the trades and with the crafts and everything that comes out of that that's so positive, right? And some wonderful people in that, in that whole process. So that was, that was pretty cool uh, to also get to live. I mean, I was in it with people, I was working with those people, I was buying materials and supplies, I was outsourcing to some of those people, some of those people were in my team, I was one of those people. So that was a pretty cool experience to get to live in somebody else's shoes, right, if you will. 
but it was very rewarding too. Yeah. Sounds like two things that are really central to everything that you've done and what you're doing right now is solving problems and then a legacy of impact and impacting yeah. people's lives yeah. and yeah. people's companies and anything like that. So as you look forward over the next year or the next 10 years or whatever, what is like a problem that you really want to see solved that you can think you can have an impact on? Well, so one that, that actually you should be able to relate to is, is um, one of the things that distinguishes us now Experian Group as a, as a firm compared to where we were before um, is that we are, we're hiring people straight out of school. And that, bit, that has been, and I wish I could take credit for it, but it was actually one of my clients. Uh, when I was coming back to consulting, I met with her and tried to figure out where the state of consulting was because I've been away for about six years or so, right, before I came back. And my, my, my mission at the time when I was talking with her was just trying to figure out, you know, what's the right value proposition? What do companies need? What's working? What's not working? What would you need? And it was one of those things that she said to me at the time that our large monolithic multi-global company um, is not the best at recruiting and attracting young talent straight out of school. And more importantly, we're not really good at growing them and developing the way that they're kind of accustomed to, right? And uh, more importantly, even still, if for some reason they don't end up working out, then it becomes a really expensive proposition to that corporation, right? So her idea was, wouldn't it be great if you went to the colleges, you hired them, you attracted them, you develop them, you put them to work on projects with us, and if we really love them, then we might try to steal them from you after a couple of years, right? And I thought that was just a great value proposition. She was indicating a problem that they were having, and that the solution to the problem was consistent with what we wanted to do, which was to serve clients and to serve our people, serve our clients and serve our people better than anybody else. So that's what we set out to do. We set out to recruit uh, young folks from colleges from Georgia, Georgia Tech, Clemson, Auburn, uh, Kennesaw. We hire a lot from Kennesaw as well and a few other places. But, but uh, the, 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 and we, we recruit them and we, and we do work in, in a couple different areas, not just the systems technology development, but also just regular business analysts and regular business consulting. So um, for us, that's been a really rewarding experience. It's sort of uh, invigorating. It kind of keeps us young in a lot of ways, but it's also a way to, and, and this is really where the answer to your question is, it's, it's a way to, to leverage what people in your generation bring to the table naturally. Uh, all of you were born into the connected world. Most of us in my age group had to learn it after the fact, but all of you guys were born into that world. So that's a unique experience and a unique perspective that you have. But at the same time, for us to be able to impart the things from our working style and our generation and the things from the business world that really are relevant. So it's sort of our way of kind of you know, merging the best of what we have to offer with the best that your generation has to offer and put it together to add value to clients through the service that we provide, but then also add value to the individuals. And that is pretty cool. Okay. That's sort of having uh, impact, if you will, beyond, beyond us directly. So totally winding down the podcast here. Okay. We are going to go to the life hack sponsored by Kyle Larson portion of the podcast. And we should mention that the entire podcast is actually sponsored by Leo hates vegetables. The Instagram <laughs> account uh, sponsored the other Leo. by the other Leo 
who hates vegetables and cooks good meats. So please come to Leo Hates Vegetables on Instagram. He hates vegetables and loves meat. Moving on here, Leo. Big Leo. Yeah. Leo Grande. One life hack for life. Uh, I don't know if it's a life hack, but a saying that I always, you know, uh, loved is be a well, not a fountain. It basically means that don't run your mouth all the time. Just, you know, be there to answer questions uh, when, when you're being basically asked as opposed to just, you know, running your mouth at everything all the time. Right so, What is a non-self-help book that everyone should read? The Fountainhead. The, um, it, it, it takes a while to kind of explain it, but it's really a book about the power of the individual and those kinds cool. of things. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Amazing. The Fountainhead by... Anne Rand. Anne Rand. Yeah, yeah. I, I like I like To Kill a Mockingbird, too. Yeah. Yeah, sounds pretty good. That is a good, so, good yeah. flick, yeah. 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 Uh, what about an album someone should listen to from start to finish? Eagles Greatest Hits. Great call. Wow. <laughs> Have you seen him live? Absolutely, yeah. Before yeah. Glenn Fry passed? Or uh, before Glenn Fry passed. I've not gone um, since. Although Vince I'm, Gill's a good Vince Gill's a good he's addition. A good and what's what's uh what's Glenn's son's name again? Deacon. Deacon, yeah. And I hear he's pretty good and he sounds a lot like his dad. He's really good and my dad and I went up to a show in Philadelphia. Right. Uh, you James me Taylor. From there. Yeah, we did because we were at your, your yeah, university. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And um James Taylor opened. And James Taylor's one of my like, huge influences. Huh. I love him. After the show, Deacon Fry throws out his pick and somehow my dad and I were up in like the very front. We had some ticket problems, and they ended up sending us up there, which was great. We cool. Very content with that. And these two people are in like a fist fight, the row in front of me for a pick. And I look down, and it's at my feet. And so I just pick it up, put it in my pocket, and we left. So I have a Deacon Fry pick. Oh, very room. cool. I'll have to show it to you. App everyone needs on their phone. So my fitness pal is a pretty good one. So um, I don't really go anywhere without the uh, iPhone or you know, Apple Maps or whatever it's called. You know, it's just Are you an Apple Maps guy? Yeah, I instead I, of Google Maps. I I mean I'm I'm a big YouTube first of all, so YouTube is the other one. So I I'm not oh, yeah, on my nice. iPad, YouTube, I live on YouTube. And that's probably the only I mean I try to I try to I'm sensitive to the privacy issues and all that. I I, I don't do Google Maps anymore just because I don't want to feed that engine. Uh, so I use Apple respects privacy a lot more. So, you know, I use that a little bit more, but that being said, I'm a big YouTube user. So, um, you're a YouTuber. Yeah. I mean, I, I, you can find, you can, you can find, I mean, I, I'm on YouTube all the time, whether it's, you know, woodworking techniques, metalworking techniques, you know, ESPN, you know, sports analysis, um, any advice, on anything reviews on any product that you want you know from what are the best wall anchors to you know uh, if you're gonna buy your first guitar what 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 do you want it to be and you know what to look for in a guitar whatever I mean just everything you're always looking for there's you know you can find the information that you want you know with my CNC machine I mean there's tons of information on how to properly configure and set up your CNC machine and those kinds of things so you, I'm on YouTube all the time so nice yeah Last two questions. Yeah. First one, kind of deep. What do you think is the core of creativity? 
as a creator, um, I think it's really just the ability to um, take in every experience that you have and knowing, you know, how to draw upon them, you know, together, put different experiences together to really draw upon something. So, yeah. what about with your wood? Um, it's a very odd way of phrasing that, but. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I I. Uh, Again, I I love drawing upon different things that you see, right? And then kind of putting them all together to try to come up with something slightly new or different, okay? Yeah. Um, I appreciate multiple styles, multiple things that I see in real life, in history and art and experiences and movies and whatever the case may be. And I draw upon them to try to come up with something that's that sort of combines elements of, of multiple things. Okay. So, And then final question. We are one piece of advice for someone that feels like an underdog. And you want to encourage them in their fight to become the champion. Like you have done. Underdog <laughs> Leo. Well, you know... I think well so so I do I do like flying under the radar screen. I do like surprising people. I do like you know, basically doing stuff that a lot of other people think it's impossible to do. You know, one of the coolest things when we were getting North Highland going at the time was that all the big four, big five people at the time were saying how this is gonna fail, right? And look at those hacks, et cetera. But the reality is is that if you really take the trouble to really figure out what is it, what's the missing value proposition and how can you draw upon your abilities and your talents and your, your passions and everything else to really deliver on a value proposition, I think that, and then you set out to do it and you're dedicated and you're focused and then, and, 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 and you really reflect on, you're willing to be your own worst critic, if you will, right? And be honest with yourself about what's working and not working. And you're constantly looking at that value proposition and figuring out how do you continue to deliver on it, you know, and how do you continue to just get better at it? I think that that um, that's the journey that's really most important. The outcome might turn out to be that you defy the odds or that you, you're, you know, you, you prove something, um, you know, despite what others may have thought about it, right? But, but the important thing is, is, given it really evaluating and understanding exactly what it is that you're trying to do how it fits you and your abilities where you're strong and how you can leverage those strengths but more importantly where are you weak and what are you got to do to compensate for those weaknesses right who do you have to team up with how do you need to build some skills etc right um and, and and it's that journey of actually working through all of that and, and striving to really deliver on that value proposition that that's really the fun part the you know whether you beat other people or not that's more sort of the evidence and the final outcome what's important is what you feel in the process you know that, that you're going through um it's it's almost it's almost like like you know with these guys whether it's clemson or or lsu whatever the case may be right i mean right now that, that we're going through at this moment i mean the 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 real memories yeah sure they're going to look back and say oh we won the championship or we lost the championship or whatever the case may be but really what's most memorable is how they lived to their fullest and how they were putting all their abilities to play right 
at their at their best at the moment and um, not leaving anything you know on the field kind of thing so or leaving it all on the field if you will the other way around so que lindo <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Live My Dream podcast with Leo Mateo. I hope that you are feeling as inspired as I am after listening back through it right now. And if you want to get in touch with Leo, you can find his contact information below in the show notes. If you would like to get in touch with me, I would love to chat with you as well. And my information is also in the show notes. This episode marks the conclusion of season two of the Live My Dream podcast. So it could be a second before we have another podcast. In the meantime, you can keep up with me on my Instagram at Brendan Abernathy, or you can go to my website and join my email community or anything of the sorts. You can also keep up with dreamers that are doing things every day, everyday people that are dreaming on the Live My Dream Community Instagram page, which you can find at Live My Dream Community. Can't wait to see you on the road. Please reach out. Would love to be friends. And you know what it is. It's time to make it today and live your dream. Ooh.